the word I don't like what you say is confrontation with the past and to eradicate the past. And that's where I have a very fundamental difference is that the past needs to be integrated, not confronted. And so the whole issue, and it's very relevant for psychedelics because that's exactly what seems to happen. If you need to go there and to, on a very deep, deep, deep pre-cognitive level, no, that was then and this is now. From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about getting through the hard stuff. I'm John Earl. Today on the podcast, a conversation between two titans in the field of trauma research and therapy. It's Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, the founder and medical director of the Trauma Research Foundation in Brookline, Massachusetts, and the author of the New York Times bestselling The Body Keeps the Score. Here he's in conversation with Dr. Rachel Yehuda, a leader and pioneer in her own right in the field of traumatic stress studies. Dr. Yehuda is a professor of psychiatry and neuroscience here at the Akon School of Medicine and director of the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. The conversation touches on many subjects, including complex PTSD and the promise of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Dr. Vanderkolk and Dr. Yehuda are incredible at boiling down and not dumbing down. So even though it's a conversation between specialists, I think you'll agree that it's accessible and compelling. It was recorded recently over Zoom as part of the Mindset Lecture Series for the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. To begin, here is Dr. Rachel Yehuda. I want to give our audience and our listeners just a real sense of how pioneering your vision has been. And I was there while... I was there to see it happening. Um, one, one of the things that we used to talk about a lot was our concerns really with how evidence-based research in PTSD, especially in with respect to treatments, was evolving and shaping the field. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to writing The Body Keeps the Score um, from the perspective of these concerns? Well, you know, my most immediate inspiration was I've been on various admissions committees for medical schools and residency training programs at Harvard and at Boston University. And I always ask people, what books have you read that you found particularly inspiring? And if you would ask me, what books did you read that inspired you before you ever became a psychiatrist? Okay, well, that one, that one, that one, that one. And in the last 15 years or so, none of the applicants could come up with a book that had inspired them. And I go, oh my God. Here, and I, you know, what I also saw is that psychiatry became more and more of a sterile profession and became a drug-pushing thing. But like, that's not psychiatry. Psychiatry is about the minds and, and systems that people live in and families and uh, executive functioning, uh, how well they are in terms of taking hold of their lives. And I wrote a book to to inspire young people to go like, this is the most interesting thing I can do with my life. How I many of you can put, put the brain together with neuroendocrinology, with social situations, with uh, historical uh, traumas, uh, our incredible need to go to war and to glorify it. All of these things come together in traumatic stress. And there's great literature in it. There's great movies in it. So it brings so much together in terms of the, 
the totality of life, including maybe most of all, how people go through horrendous experiences and lift themselves up and go on somehow with their lives by hook or by crook. And I don't like to call that resiliency. I, 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 every, everybody who I know has been traumatized, I call resilient. But I hear those stories, I go like, oh my God, how come you're still here? I can't imagine having gone through anything like that myself. And you're still motivated, you're still trying to do things. Good for you. Because we've discovered how damaged people become, how damaged their brains are, how complicated their minds are. And we're dealing with an incredible damage of reality. And, uh, and we have barely scratched the surface in terms of how we can help. I agree with you about using the word resilience in the way that we sometimes use it. And also agree that everybody struggles with, with things and just this idea of that you're going to keep going. Where does the concept of PTSD fit into to this? How do you think, um, what, what is the best way to think about PTSD, um, the way that it was conceptualized? And where does complex PTSD come into this picture? Well, uh, you know, you, you may not agree on that with this, but but I was even here, even before you. So I was part of the team who who interviewed people for the PTSD diagnosis. So the, well, there was not a real field trial, but we just submitted a lot of case histories. And um, what was going on is that the Vietnam War was over. We saw this formerly powerful men who were broken and they would come to a clinic and say uh, I've become a monster nobody is safe with me I can't trust what I do I blow up at people I wake up in the middle of the night strangling my girlfriend I have these cute kids and I can't feel anything for them and what we saw is impulse issues and relational issues but we're at the VA and we have to convince people this is about the war. I happen to be very interested in the recurrent recollection because at that point I was, a, I was a sleep researcher. And we discovered that traumatic nightmares occur in stage three and four sleep, that they're not REM sleep, and they were seem to be exactly reliving the trauma. And so the memory issue is terribly important, but it's secondary to the issue of how you cannot orient yourself to your world. How to, Pierre Genet, who became a very important person in my thinking, said back in 1889, le traumatisme is a disease of présentification. It's an illness of not being able to be in the present. That is as good a definition as I know. And yes, the memories are part of it, but all the adaptations of trying not to feel, trying not to be experienced, become very complex things that ruin your reality. Uh, of your current life. So your life becomes impoverished. Because, and then Genet again says, uh, and the, fighting this takes so much energy that all traumatized people have the evolution of their lives halted because they're attached to the terrible thing. And that gets me into, together with other things, into Piaget and how people have different mental functions in different ages. And that so many of the people who I see seem to be stuck at the level of being a three-year-old or a five-year-old, even though they're grown up. So I get very intrigued with how trauma shapes people's mental capacities very much according to the age in which the trauma occurs, and it's different for different ages. Uh, we talked about it the other day, I think, 
hardly anybody of us ever gets to see pure PTSD. It's always one thing on top of another. And then um, it became a memory diagnosis. We had to do it because everything in life is political. I'm going to just backtrack to some something right. you said. I think that'll give you an opening for, for what you're going to say next. Um, you, you talked about the definition, as good a definition as any about traumas as not being able to be in the present moment. What do you think about the idea that treatments of PTSD, conventional uh, trauma-focused treatments, believe that confrontation with the past and confrontation with a traumatic memory is essential for healing? And maybe that ties into this idea that um, you just started to um, talk about the centrality, I guess, of traumatic memories as a hallmark symptom in PTSD. So what do you think about the need to revisit the trauma versus being in the present? I think that's a core question. And depending on what day you ask me that question, you'll get different answers. Now, I think people, like let's say you're a teenager and you have been horribly abused at home and your first boyfriend or your first girlfriend are a real caring person. That first experience of saying, oh, the reality can be different. I can feel taken care of. I can feel loved at a critical period of brain development can completely change people's mind. Basic training is a very great example. I mean, people should learn more about about basic training. Many, many people who join the armed services have very, very disruptive backgrounds and they have a lot of prior abuse histories. But you go, you do basic training and after 12 weeks of doing these things, you feel like, wow, I'm okay. I'm an amazing person. So they have a visceral body experience of competency and belonging, they don't visit their past. Doesn't therefore resolve it? I'm not sure. And the word I don't like what you say is confrontation with the past and to eradicate the past. And that's where I have a very fundamental difference is that the past needs to be integrated, not confronted. And so the whole issue, and it's very relevant for psychedelics because that's exactly what seems to happen. If you need to go there and to, on a very deep, deep, deep pre-cognitive level, no, that was then and this is now. I could even tell you about some of my own experiences where these experiences are not fun. You know, you and I have never talked about our experience, but stuff comes up. But on psychedelics, you can go like, Oh my God, this is awful. Uh, and so the last time I, I actually did MDMA myself, I went, that poor kid, that poor kid, because I remembered what it must have been like for me to live in the final years of the Second World War with starvation and death all around me and be very, very sick. And I go, that poor little kid. But it's not a confrontation. It was accessing it like, oh, that's what it was like back then. And you can make that separation between past and present. Do you think that it's possible to heal from trauma without going back there, however you want to call it, and integrating the past? Or more? can you have more of like a Buddhist approach of being in the here and now and doing things that can make you feel loved and nurtured now? Because that, that seems to be what you're saying, that you can have a corrective experience and maybe not 
integrate the, the past? It's integration of the past. But see, the Buddhist experience is beautiful, except when you start doing intense meditation with very traumatized people, they visited trauma. Uh, Willoughby Britain just is being funded right now about the dangers of meditation because it's very, if you don't have a lot of trauma, you can come still and deal with all this stuff. But most of my traumatized people flunked out of these courses because mm. the trauma is not about the past. The trauma is how the past lives inside of you in the present. And so the moment you become mindful, you meet all the terror of the past. And we see this all the time in the work that we do. People don't want to meet themselves. They're happy to tell a story about something that happened a long time ago because it gets them away from these sensations in their body that really carry the imprint of the trauma. Yes, and is that one of the fundamental critiques that you have of evidence-based trauma-focused therapies? Well, you can call it evidence-based Okay, they got some grants well, and showed that people get trauma-focused cognitive behavioral approaches. I think one of the things that really was hard on our field is the emphasis on evidence-based. Why right, we we both researchers, we both study uh, how things work, but a really very intricate psychological intervention is very hard to protocolize. And so these most simplistic treatments have become protocolized. I say, oh, that's evidence-based treatment. They go like, well, it gets people better by 10%, if you're lucky, but that doesn't cure people. And they do EMDR, and 80% of our adult-onset PTSD people who had a good childhood, no more PTSD. It's not like they get a little bit better. It's gone. Mm. And so our evidence-based really goes into courses instead of exploring how can we do better than this, because our results aren't very good, a 10% improvement on your PTSD score is not satisfying. And what else can we do? And the, what else can we do became very difficult because it's almost impossible to get grants for anything other but a top-down approach. Right. But you, you must agree that it is important to be able to guide a field of academic medicine or psychiatry based on research that people do, Absolutely. even if it's hard. And so... And that's what I've done. I've studied all these different things. I'm so, yeah. somewhat suspicious of people who find one treatment that's not particularly effective. They say, I found the evidence-based treatment and sp- spent the whole rest of their lives sticking to that treatment. Are you really a researcher? Or are you just sort of stuck in getting your next grant about your particular method? That is not very interesting to me or admirable. You are of my ilk. I you am of your ilk in that I think that um, we should challenge ourselves to study things that are difficult. And that um, we sometimes do go for the low-hanging fruit. I mean, um, uh, cognitive behavioral approaches really have used an extinction fear model right. to justify um, this idea that um, that techniques like desensitization and habituation might result in extinguishing a fear response. And right. that it works because it has a theory. It has an animal right. basis. Um, yeah. It does seem to work in... Um, some cases, but particularly the, I think the simpler cases where there is kind of an adult onset to a very concrete 
um, event with a beginning and end. Yeah, and even for kids, huh? if yeah. kids have caring and loving parents and they get traumatized by something, CBT is quite effective. But right. if, if your mom is the source of your trauma, that's a little bit more complicated. That's right. So um, I guess what people might be very interested in here is really this idea of whether treating a simple case of a concrete finite trauma is different than a situation where there has been a lot of developmental exposures where the home that's supposed to be your nice safe place really becomes the dangerous environment and there isn't anybody there to kind of give you a different message that you can be safe. And that has been called complex PTSD unofficially, right? Because complex PTSD is just something we say because calling that PTSD doesn't seem to be an equivalency. Um, So the question is really whether that label of complex PTSD, we certainly understand how it pertains to an experience, but what do you think about treatment? I mean, does it require different treatment interventions? Oh, absolutely. Because having a a drunken alcoholic father who beats you up on a regular basis and molests members of your household is not an event. It becomes your experience of life. It becomes your identity. It becomes who you are. Uh, And, you know, again, you know, that's how we defined PTSD back in 1980. We said people have been exposed to horrendous events outside of their human experience. How blind were we that we didn't know that these events are not outside of normal human experience? How many women get raped? How many kids get abused? There are millions of them. And we said, this is ex- exceptional because this particular event, but for many people, it's an ongoing part of their lives that determines their identity, their perceptions of the world, and their neurobiology. But we're, but we're leaving out, surprising for the VA, is the attachment system. Because, of course, soldiering is entirely based on the attachment system because basic training really helps people to form very close ties to their fellow soldiers, which is but helps them to get through the war. And the very first piece of research that I did dug up that losing your friends in the war was a trauma. Yes. Let me go back. You said a few really important things that I want to open up. The first question I would ask you is what what do you think the necessary components are of healing from developmental trauma? Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai. We find a way. The most important thing is feeling safe in your own body. Okay. Not getting signals of fear, fright, danger, rage, the sensation. Darwin, 1872, Emotional Expression of Animals Man, says emotions are about physical sensations that are meant to make you move. That's why it's called emotion. But I would argue that the, that that would also apply to us um, a case of 
non-complex PTSD. Just this idea of being safe in your body seems to be something that would have in common, because I'm trying to lead us into um, the potential of psychedelics, which I think has, I think psychedelics have potential for both one-shot events and for very complex um, developmental traumas. And I guess the efficacy of psychedelics and particularly MDMA, the fact that it works for both things seems to challenge the idea that if there is a very complex developmental trauma, you really need to do something different than if there is a single event, because the idea of achieving safety in your body, that seems to be where where you can go, right? We did a piece of research in the early 90s, probably the research program in the late 80s, actually, uh, looking at people's background and their response to treatment. And we found that if people could not remember feeling safe with anybody as a child, that they could not make use of psychotherapy because there's no imprint of being safely held in a way. And that's why adult onset trauma is so easy to treat, at least from my perspective, uh, because people can remember what it felt like to be loved. People remembered what it felt like to be to have fun and to feel safe. And that what makes complex trauma so difficult is that it's so hard to get to a state of safety of and surrender and being able to go there. I, I thought it's a very important paper that I wrote back then. I, I don't see it actually ever being quoted, but but that's an important finding. If you have no no safe interjects, no memory of being cared for and loved, it's very hard today to feel safe in your body. And that's where the psychedelics came in. There's also a yoga came in. Okay, well, let's let's um, pivot to psychedelics then, because can psychedelics make you feel safe in your body if you haven't had the experience before of feeling safe in your body? And, and if so, what do you think is going on to allow that to occur? I think that's the great question that we need to answer. Like, so I told you that before I got involved in the MAP study, I talked to Rick and Michael and I said, don't include people who have no post-traumatic stress disorder, who have always traumatic, who have no memory of a pre-traumatic existence. Because those people in all of my studies I've done do not do well. And they'll screw up your sample. And it's just too complex a sample to study. I was overruled. In this case, I was happy I was overruled. That's what's the great thing about doing research is you have an idea and you put the data in and you go, wow, I had not expected that. So what did we find? The first finding is that the dissociative subtype of PTSD, which is almost impossible to treat, those people did better than the people who didn't have those. Like, wow. Because when you're dissociated, you're out of it. And when you're out of it, you cannot access yourself. And so what happened? I mean, that's a huge finding. Huh? And the next thing is that we find out that, that almost all of our patients, participants, had developmental trauma almost all of them, which is very typical for the people who I see in my life. And I suspect the people you see in the VA also. Because you're in the VA culture, you blame it on the war. But boy, when you look at what happened to them before, you see much more than that. And so 
Uh, what is astonishing is these data on self-compassion. And, you know, one thing that sort of stands out about when you have been abused and neglected as a kid, you feel like this happened to me because I'm a terrible person. And they know that it's not logically doesn't make sense. So telling them it wasn't your fault, you're just a little kid, doesn't change anything because they feel fundamentally bad and deficient. And when we measure that, they, they're okay. They get this sense of, I'm okay, it wasn't my fault. Not because of any input from the outside, but these uh, MDMA particularly, I wonder about the other drugs, possibly also, uh, get people in this state of self-compassion. And so what you see clinically when you do your MDMA sessions is that there ain't no picnic. I was just in academy training and uh, 30 people were going through it. One guy said, I just spent the three hour, last three hours talking to God. I go, that's cool. I've never had that experience. <laughs> but for the majority of people, when they close their eyes, they go deep inside. A lot of painful stuff comes up. And I, I know it for myself also because I've done it. And then you notice what happened back there and you go like, that poor kid, that kid, nobody was there for that kid. And so in some way that may not appeal to you with your particular scientific background uh, is you take care of that child inside of you who got so wounded. And it's very painful, but you have a degree of relationship to yourself that is, and you saw the data, I mean, that's what we're writing up right now, of a sense, a terrible thing happened to this kid and they need to, I need to take care of me. Huh? So it, it allows people to go into these internal networks, which we all know is so critical for healing and these interceptive systems and they meet themselves and they go like, oh my God. And it's totally non-cognitive, but after you allow yourself to go there very gently, that's why I don't like the word confrontation here at all, huh? Very gently, you go there and you go, yeah, okay. And hopefully you have a sitter with you who is very kind. I just want to, before we leave it out, don't do the experiences outside of a therapeutic environment. Don't have people blow their minds in their homes by themselves. These are potentially very dangerous substances because stuff comes up. And it's very important to create a place where people feel held and people may be yelling and screaming as stuff comes up and you need to be there for them and say, it's okay, I'm here for you. Huh? So that context is terribly important. Maybe say a little bit more about that because MDMA, uh, people talk about that it is a very safe drug and that in a non-clinical setting produces euphoria, it's nicknamed ecstasy. Yeah. Um, what are your concerns about somebody taking this drug at home in order to kind of access an inner cognitive state? Well, you know, I've never taken MDMA for social settings. I, I missed out on that. But what people always say, they feel open-hearted, they feel generous, they feel warm when they engage with other people. But when you do your MDMA trauma experience, you have a blindfold and you go inside. And you become social with yourself to some degree, but you get to know this creature who is you. And, but actually another indeed stunning part of the current MDMA trial is that we have had not a single 
bad side effects. That's because it's such a carefully done study. You know, because you're studying it yourself. It's a real pain in the ass study because <laughs> we do so much to make sure that people are okay. It's such a very careful creation of a cocoon for people to have these very, very profound experiences. Many of them are quite painful, actually. Oh, Basil, you said that you were advising the design of the MAPS trial to not include people with developmental traumas or people that had had these complex presentations. And you're glad they didn't listen because those were the people that did very well, and particularly um, people in the dissociative subtype did well. So um, even though you got that wrong, what would you say sitting but here that, today about you know what it's like to <laughs> be wrong you know <laughs> no no but i'm i'm wondering if if seriously you have a concern about any particular clinical presentation or a particular um phenotype or as something of somebody that you wouldn't um, recommend the experience even in the guided safe way in which it is offered in clinical trials you know, I'd be very concerned for people who have no, have very low executive functioning, who cannot organize themselves around a particular task, whose, whose filters are, they just cannot activate the net, the salience network in the right way and the executive network in the right way. So, uh, so if people are too out of it, I'd be very, very careful with them. But, but the surprising thing, and that's going to be again, why we do the research is how pathological can pe- people be and still benefit from it. And I continue to have grave concerns about that. But I struggle with this too, because on the one hand, um, we want to think about the psychedelic therapy experience as not being too cognitive, um, as being more experiential, more um, accessing feelings in your body. And yet, to not have executive function, you're pointing to really cognitive functioning. And so it's a bit of a paradox, right? It is. Uh, So for cognitive behavioral therapy, people really don't do well in those therapies if they don't have imagination, if they don't have flexibility, if they can't think about things differently, if they don't show cognitive flexibility. If they can't observe themselves and all that stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm wondering if the same skills that are required to do well in trauma-focused therapies are also required to do well here or, um, or not. When you or your family are diagnosed with cancer, you want the best and most advanced care. At Mount Sinai's Cancer Centers of Excellence, multidisciplinary experts from oncologists to researchers create a team dedicated to you. They develop advanced diagnostic and treatment options while giving compassionate care in a welcoming environment. Learn more about Mount Sinai Tisch Cancer Center at mountsinai.org slash cancer. We find a way. Mount Sinai. As Rachel Yehuda would say, that's an empirical question. <laughs> and a very important empirical question that we should inculcate in our research design. Yeah. I, I, felt, you know, I felt really sad that we did this $30 million study 
and the main outcome is PTSD. You know, I always like to say that John McCain had a high PTSD score. He was a senator. And the guy lying on the bridge next to my house has the same PTSD score, but he's completely incapacitated. So PTSD is just a small piece of the whole problem. And so the issue of being able to observe yourself, able being able to articulate who you are, to know what you need, know what you want, to actually have the lights go on inside of your mind about this is me and I'm, this is my life, which is very oftentimes very impaired and very traumatized people. We should study that. Yeah, so you're, what you're talking about, I, and I agree with you, is that there seems to be two orthogonal dimensions. One is PTSD symptom severity, and one is functional ability, um, and that they're not necessarily related, or, or they should be, right? They, one, yeah. would, one would think that if you have really, really severe PTSD symptom severity, you should not be able to function very well. But what do you make of that? Yeah. So what does that tell us, if anything, about the utility of the diagnosis of PTSD or lack thereof? Well, I think, you know, what we see in PTSD is a real thing uh, of, of being having flashbacks, uh, behaving and feeling as if you're back there and numbing yourself out is an absolutely a, a discrete thing. But depending on when it happened, it has a very different impact. So like in the Harvard Grant study, all these guys went to Harvard Second World War, few of them got PTSD, and the people who got PTSD functioned better than the people without PTSD because they hid themselves in their work and they had more listings in who is who in America than the non-traumatized group. <laughs> so having a solid background and getting traumatized, some people are able to get it together and become and hide themselves in their work. Their kids hated them, their wives couldn't stand them, but their work people really saw them as very resilient. And so, but if the same thing would have happened to them when they were two years old at the hands of their own parents, uh, you would get some PTSD symptoms, although most, most abused kids don't meet criteria for PTSD, but you get a whole issue of identity and functioning and not being able to learn, not able to take in you know, information, uh, which is a very different adaptation. So that's interesting. I'm going to ask you, I think, one more question um, and then turn it over to the audience. Um, and this is a question about that I get asked. Um, so I have my own opinions on it. But I'm just wondering um, if you think that people require treatment as a result of having um, severe trauma exposure or whether what brings people to treatment ought to be an impairment in the way that they function. I mean, is there such a thing as treating trauma or is ah. there something that something else? Um, I think you probably know what I think, but I'm just really wondering. You have you probably agree with <laughs> We are trauma informed. I yeah. don't know what the hell you mean with that. I but also don't. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friendly debate with Nadine Burke Harris, the health czar of California, uh, and she was very hurt that I said what I said. And I said, I can't help it. She's getting trauma histories on all the kids in the California school system. And I go like, that is dangerous information. If anybody gets a hold of that, they know the 
actuarial tables that will condemn these kids for life. No, what you should do is to help these kids to regulate and to form rhythmical continuity with other kids so they can be in the present. So you should create school systems where kids can feel seen and safe and that you don't bring up the trauma. Because people seek treatment for their trauma. But you shouldn't do trauma screens. Not in school. Shouldn't screen from trauma. No, I don't think so. Okay, and so what about for going into the military? The moment it's in your record, it's very dangerous information. But Bessel, if you learned that somebody had an extreme trauma, would, would you say to yourself or them, you know, you really should speak to someone because of this oh, incident? Oh, absolutely. No, I, so you I, should I, treat trauma. Absolutely. We, we should also treat it. But we should not treat the trauma. We should treat the secondary effect of trauma of blowing up at people and not being able to focus and not being able to learn and not being able to form friendships with people. That is the issue. It's not the traumatic memories. Uh, so you, people have these somatic reactions to minor stimuli that messes up their lives. Huh? So how does PTSD express itself? You blow up one marriage after another because you get too angry and you shut down to have a relationship. And that's the issue. You could say, oh, the trauma. Yeah, the trauma started all this, but by now there is mental and physiological processes that keep you stuck over there and keep intervening with but you, uh, in your current life. But life is for the living. Uh, so uh, revisiting the past over and over again, it's a very important thing because uh, you, you probably know Ruth Lattie's work about the default mode network, is that when you're traumatized, the default network is sort of gone under, when you're quiet and nothing is happening, but your default network gets activated when you're in a traumatic situation. So their brains are reconfigured to be very good in very scary situations and they feel nothing when life is not scary. Well, if there ever was a clinical challenge, that's a clinical challenge. Yes. I changed my mind. I'm going to ask you one last question. And that is, what, if anything, are you most worried about as the psychedelic field matures and research goes forward? What I'm most worried about is that people cut corners. Uh, the commercialization will take over, as already has happened to a large degree in ketamine. Uh, people will not see this as a, I'm going to use the word, as a sacred process. Mm. That may be offensive for people who label themselves scientists, but when you do this stuff, you know, you get to know something, but people mean the sacred also. Yes. Uh, and like the people at Hopkins, they're very admirable people, and they always have uh, been able to keep both things in mind in a way. Uh, and I admire them for not cutting out that piece, actually. Well, I want to thank you very much for having this fireside chat with me. Is there anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you about? If not, we'll go into the questions. <laughs> I hope we have many more, many hours to talk about stuff. <laughs> yeah. God willing, Bessel. Oh, God willing. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm, um, <laughs> I'm going to turn this over to, um, to Lauren right now uh, to see. We have quite a lot of questions on the Q&A. And some people might want to come up and ask them in person. Um, but some of these are really terrific questions. Thank you.
Yes, thank you so much. Um, we do have our first question um, from Dr. Garrett Deckel. Um, so yeah, please unmute yourself. Okay, hi. Hi, it's an honor to be here today. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm a specialist in dissociative disorders and therefore also complex PTSD. And I'm always a, a little puzzled when people say they're surprised that the dissociative subtype did well because I understand dissociative responses, not as being out of it, although they can be, but if I, I love that you brought in Gen A and, and presentifications, I totally agree with, with that way of thinking about it, but it's it's sort of part of what, what in PTSD fights presentification, that dissociation is a fear-based separation, as I understand it. Dissociative processes are a fear-based separation from the unbearable aspects of the present. and. It, then it seems to me that psychedelics and especially MDMA, it makes a, a lot of sense that they'd be perfect for people with dissociation because they do make the present bearable. People with dissociation aren't just like going around out of it all the time. Yeah. It's a process that comes and goes. No, I think there's a very valid point, but uh, we also know that people develop dissociative disorder because the confrontation with reality was unbearable to them. So they split it off. And so my thought is also, once any intervention brings this stuff up that is so unbearable to confront in the first place, do we not blow up people's minds further? So that's why I'm really, I'm still worried actually. Yeah. Despite the fact that we now have very good data on a decent sized sample, I'm still worried that people will uh, visit very harsh experiences that they're unable to, to deal with. I don't want to say I'm unworried, but, but I think what you said about executive function and other ego strengths say a lot about who might do well and who might not. So anyway, I'll stop there. No, but, but I think we really should measure all these things because we may come up with surprising findings. And, yeah. you know, and it's, for me, it was really not surprising at the end that almost everybody who came into the study had developmental trauma because that's what we see. Yeah. And we have this notion, oh, they were perfectly normal until the war came out, they saw something horrible, and then uh, that's not how it goes. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I think, oh, perfect. Yes, Carly's up next. Hi. Um, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. I really enjoyed it. Uh, my question is, um, is there any evidence that psychedelic-assisted therapy could be preventative against the development of traumatic disorders? It's an interesting question. Uh, Wendy Dandria just did a, a survey that, that uh, Rachel was not very impressed with, but I thought it was a nice sort of initial invitation to start looking at something. No, it's not definitive science, but, you know, you start somewhere. And she found in their, her internet survey... Uh, that people who took psychedelics are indeed able to, to deal with stuff much better in, on a day-to-day -day basis and possibly prevent it. But, you know, what does that mean? You put people in MDMA before they go into uh, fight terrorists? Like, you know, that was done. You know, we know that heroin is a very good preventative thing for PTSD. Doug, Doug Brenner wrote about it. I think it didn't get much press. But once, you, once your autonomic nervous system is calm, you don't get PTSD. But I wouldn't go for that particularly. I'm curious what Rachel has to say about it. Yeah. 
Well, there's a lot of research. Um, uh, the research that our colleague Glenn Sachs did early in his career showed yeah. that burn victims who were on high doses of opiates didn't get PTSD either. And rape victims who were inebriated were less likely to then later have PTSD symptoms. Um, doesn't mean that they were fine in either case. But, it just means that it prevented that particular uh, symptom presentation. When, when um, physicians treat acute trauma with benzodiazepines, it prevents the processing. Um, you, you do have fewer symptoms earlier, but then later there's a lot of um, confusion and it catches up with you. So this idea of, you know, quote unquote, preventing PTSD, uh, and we're in the business of that. We have a study ongoing using um, high doses of, well, single high dose of cortisol in the emergency room to see if we can contain. You know, I suggested that to you 20 years ago. <laughs> and you said, that's why you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> It took me a little longer to. Uh, to uh, see, see, Glenn found when you see, bring up Glenn Sachs's research, he found another very interesting thing yeah. that burn kids who had close relationships to their mothers had less pain and required less pain medication. Yeah, and so the the social cohesion is the major protector against traumatic stress, and that's why Arby's do relatively well because. If you ever want to see intimacy and closeness, join a combat unit. I mean, fair doctor people always talk about men being awful, etc. If you want to learn about love, hang out with a combat unit. These people take care of each other. You know, it's a very important thing. And yeah. allows, as long as your unit is intact, you are li less likely to get PTSD. Yes, unit cohesion. And if somebody from your unit gets killed or injured, you just never get over it. Yeah, yeah we, we've got to get into the attachment piece because it's so systematically left out. We are monkeys. You know, we completely are attached individuals. You know, I, I almost start crying when Rachel reminds me about the fact that we have done, spent 30 years off and all together. Like, you know, we are <laughs> monkeys who get very affiliated with each other. That's who we are. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's because of your MDMA experience, Bessel. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I I um I agree. That that was a really interesting question. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Thank you, Carly. Thank you. Thank you. Um next up we have David Jiang. Patient psychiatrist at Mount Sinai. I'm also very interested in trauma and the neurobiology of trauma. Thank you very much for the great talk, uh Rachel and Bessel. Um I wanted to ask um, if you see any potential for the treatment of personality disorders like BPT or narcissistic personality disorder with psychedelic therapies, because I hear you talking a lot about issues of self, identity, attachment, relational disturbance, and of course that's massive in that category of illness. Is that a next step in the research or future directions? That's a big question, of course. Huh? Uh, and I'm not going to make this joke in public. Um, but borderline personality disorder is obviously the next avenue. Huh? Like, you know, Judy Herman and I did the first study to show a huge amount of trauma borderline personality disorder. The study has been replicated at least 25 times by other people. We still don't def define borderline personality disorder in terms of childhood terror and attachment problems. 
The research is overwhelming in that regard. Right? And so you cannot make a connection with yourself because you have not been able to make a connection with other people. MDMA would be absolutely the first order of possibility that you might change that. I mean, uh, uh, Martin Linhan's intervention isn't bad, but it's not particularly helpful either. No, it's, it moves people a little bit, but if people can really visit that abandonment as children, uh, uh, what we saw in our research, that abandonment concerns were very sharply attenuated, self-regulatory systems were sharply attenuated. Our data just points straight in the direction of borderline personality disorder. Good luck, because they're also the high-risk people who may actually have very nasty side effects, but got to be done, got to be studied. Yes, and um, we are planning that kind of study. Um, we're going to be collaborating with NYU on a study of personality disorder with psychedelics. And if you're interested, if anyone's interested in uh, joining any of the work we do, they should contact Lauren, and uh, we'll we can definitely use interested parties. But that should be a very interesting study. What's interesting is that our research a long time ago and people do differently today, uh, was that borderline personality disorder specifically was related to childhood trauma. Narcissistic personality disorder wasn't so much. Uh, so I think you need to be very careful what subpopulation of personality disorders you take. Uh, here's my joke. I was in the White House a few years ago and I beat myself up for not having put LSD in the drinking water, which I could have done possibly. And <laughs> I changed our the fate of, of the world. Like, how do you treat what we see in, the, in politics? Uh, the only thing I can think of is psychedelics. It's just uh, open up the world. And when you take psychedelics, you go like, I'm just a little speck in the universe. The universe is so much larger than I am, but I'm a precious little speck. You know, that is the essence of the, of the psychedelic experience. And um, that's what we all need. <laughs> um, so I'm seeing in the chat that we're getting a lot of anonymous uh, questions about your perspective on using other psychedelics to treat PTSD. Um, what do you feel might be a good idea, might be dangerous? Do you have any other thoughts or opinions about that? I, I think it's way premature to call out anything. You know, MAPS, uh, Vic Dobman, fantastically has been able to get the money together to do these gigantic studies in MDMA. The Hopkins group has done great studying uh, psilocybin for particular conditions. We don't know if they overlap from one condition or the other. These are all empirical questions. Way premature to predict anything. Thank you. Um, I'm also seeing some questions of um, if you think that there really are any contraindications um, to and uh, specifically MDMA assisted psychotherapy, or if there are things that you really think we should not try that you would be concerned about to the point that like it's not an empirical question that it really should be as a, as a dangerous thing. Yeah, you know, I would I would not mess around with people who are, are psychotic, although you know that's just because I'm scared uh, and worried about potential negative side effects. It may actually be helpful. God knows, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have the, the guts to do it, and my IRB probably wouldn't allow it either. Uh, and so there's certain populations of people who are really very, who have a thought disorder, who have word salad, who have really uh, problems putting things together. Uh, I wouldn't try it on. Uh, 
the question, can you try it on people who have no observing ego or however, whatever your term is for that, uh, is a very big question. Be, I, I do ketamine-assisted therapy also, and I practice it. And I've seen people in our trainings who absolutely have no effect on very, very high doses of medications. We did not see that in our MDMA study. And so I wonder if some people are so rigid that even a powerful psychedelic will not break through their usual defensive systems. What I'd like to say about PTSD, this field is basically 30 years old. And it's way premature to make definitive statements about anything. It's pr way premature to say anything that something is the treatment of choice. We've studied a few little treatments. You know, uh, it's way premature to, to, to call things out. You know, that's one of the things I like about uh, Robin Carhart Harris also, is that he's really exploring. And this is about exploring, being very open-minded. Well, great. I think that's a wonderful note <laughs> to end our chat. I think we have to keep an open mind and keep exploring. And I think if anything, if, if, if our trauma field has taught us anything, it's to not make um, premature conclusions. And a lot of things will surprise us if yep. we let them. Um, so again, to everyone listening, uh, Dr. Vanderkolk is the author of a number one best-selling book for several years, The Body Keeps the Score. This is the great opening um, for the second season of the Mindset Lecture Series. And we'll see you all next time. And thank you so much, Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. A special thank you to everybody involved in this recording, Dr. Rachel Yehuda and Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk, and the entire team at the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. Thank you for the conversation and thank you for sharing it with us. Road to Resilience is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System. It's made by me, John Earl, Nikki Cheatham, and Emma Stoneham. Our executive producer is Lucille Lee. This episode was recorded at the Levy Library at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. From all of us, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.